This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Welcome to the Taiwanology podcast. In this episode, we will take you back to an unprecedented event highlighting the key role Taiwan has to play in the global semiconductor supply chain. On March 16th, Commonwealth Magazine brought together in Taipei Morris Chang, the 91-year-old founder of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the world's most important chipmaker, and American historian Chris Miller, the author of the best-selling book Chip War, who is also a history professor at Tufts University. This one-hour encounter was highly anticipated. As Miller put it in his keynote address, one cannot understand the modern world without putting semiconductors at the center of the analysis. And one cannot understand the industry without putting TSMC at the center of the story. Taiwan's critical position in the chip supply chain is thanks to Chang's visionary approach to business, in particular, the innovative foundry business model. However, when Miller asked Chang what his vision for TSMC was when he first established the company 36 years ago, his answer really surprised me. However, it explains the company's eventual success. Let's hear first what Morris Chang thinks about Miller's book. The best compliment that one can pay to a book is to say, I wish I had written it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that is the compliment that is what I want to say about the book. I wish I had written it. Now, of course, I think Chris wrote it better than I could have written it. I have no quarrel with with the book at all. Uh, And uh, there may be a few minor uh, corrections. Uh, For instance, I think that uh, Chris probably overemphasized the uh, government role in TSMC's formation. Uh, uh, the government actually was just an investor. And uh, frankly, it was not a very willing investor. <laughs> but but uh, there was one guy, a key guy, KT Lee. Uh, KT Lee. If it weren't for KT Lee, uh, the government wouldn't, wouldn't have invested. And uh, after the government invested, as soon as we went on Taiwan stock market, as soon as we went public in the stock market, which was uh, 94, 1994. It was seven years after we, we formed, after we uh, uh, started to do business. 94, as soon as we um, uh, went public, the government started to sell their stock immediately. The government had 48%. So, and they really couldn't sell it fast enough. <laughs> now, of course, there was another form of support that uh, TSMC got from the government. 
And that was the original group, I call it the nuclear group of uh, TSMC. It, was, it came from the IC project in the Industrial Technology Research Institute, commonly known as ITRI. A part of the ITRI group came to TSMC when TSMC uh, started. And uh, that was uh, about 120 people, 120 people, including maybe 40 or 50 operators. And uh, in fact, Philips, uh, which was the second largest investor that, uh, that I was told to have to get in order for other Taiwan investors to have enough confidence to invest in us. 48% from the government, Taiwan government, 28% from Philips, which I got. Even Philips couldn't sell our stock fast enough. So in order to allow them to sell the stock faster, we went public in New York also. Uh, that was the reason we went public in New York uh, for them, in order for them to sell the stock faster. So when I realized that the government had sold down to 6%, I, I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, please stop selling. Now, the government did stop selling, and I thank them for that. Yeah. And that's what they have now, 6%. Perhaps I could ask one question in response to that. All right. Uh, which is, when, when you founded TSMC and looked 10 years into the future or 20 years into the future, what did you anticipate? I need to answer your question perhaps in two parts. When we first founded the TSMC, uh, 87, uh, frankly, you know, I, I, I didn't, well, I did look 10 years ahead. And I, I just wanted to survive. I just wanted the company to survive. Uh, I just didn't want to let down the government who had basically, well, funded half of us. And then, but when we went into the 90s, when we were in 91, 92, 93, then my expectation rose. Actually, you know, it was a, a case of continual rising of expectations. Uh, I certainly did not expect TSMC to be as big, as important as it is uh, uh, all the way uh, in the 90s, or even into um, 2000 and uh, let's say 2010. But from 2010 on, I really expected a TSMC to be what it is now. Uh, this is more like, this is also like uh, Gordon Moore. Gordon Moore was once asked, did you expect and this was when Intel was very successful. Gordon Moore had already retired, but he was asked, did you expect Intel to be so successful? And his answer was, nah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I answered, uh, 
your question in a uh, more complete way, you know. <laughs> Chris, do you think Intel will succeed in building a foundry business that can compete with TSMC uh, and make U.S. self-sufficient in advanced chips uh, manufacturing? And how are some of the advantages and disadvantages you've seen in Intel's effort to set up its own foundry business in your observation? First off, one of the questions referenced self-sufficiency. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned about the semiconductor industry, it's that it's impossible to be self-sufficient. And if you look at the map up behind us, uh, you'll see multiple critical countries that are involved in the industry. And so I, I think that any country that strives for self-sufficiency is likely to find itself spending a lot of money and getting less good technology as a result, which is why I don't think there are very many countries in the world that are actually uh, seeking uh, self-sufficiency. And, and certainly, it's hard to find any companies in the world that would welcome uh, that effort because companies know their suppliers and their components come from um, all over the, the world. So I, I think self-sufficiency is, is probably not the right question to ask about any leading uh, company or country. But in, in terms of Intel, you know, I think one of the conclusions from the comments we've just heard is uh, the, the challenges in setting up a, a foundry business model. And we've seen a number of companies uh, tried to do so and compete with TSMC um, with, with varying degrees of success, but, um, but certainly TSMC has vast scale uh, and advanced technologies that make it uh, difficult to, to compete with. So I, we're something to see Intel um, I try to build out their foundry business over the next several years. I'm a historian rather than a, a, uh, someone who can see into the future, so I'll, I will refrain from confident predictions about uh, what, will, what will come next. I'll leave that to, to smarter people in the audience. Um, but it, it certainly does seem like, um, like building a foundry business from scratch is, is not something that's easy when there are already um, multiple successful foundry businesses in the world. I think there's a, a third thing um, to emphasize uh, there, if I can. And, and I, I think um, going back to the self-sufficiency, one of the questions asked whether Intel would make the United States self-sufficient. And I, I think what's critical to remember about all of the firms we're discussing is that they're all firms with international footprints, uh, multiple manufacturing facilities in uh, different countries with customers uh, in, in different countries. And so although firms have national headquarters and that, that dynamic matters, almost all the firms that we might discuss today in the industry uh, have customers and suppliers that are in many uh, different countries. And so in some ways, I think uh, the nationality of a firm's headquarters is important, but it's also important not to overemphasize uh, that reality um, because the supply chains are so complex uh, and international. Yeah, well, um, I think as, as far as Intel being a foundry is concerned, uh, I think uh, Jensen Huang of um, NVIDIA uh, said the best. He said, Jensen said that uh, TSMC has learned to dance with 400 partners. We have about 400 customers. TSMC has learned to dance with 400 partners. Intel has always danced alone. <laughs> how do you see, Chris, how do you see the uh, chip world I should say, the chip uh, supply chain uh, uh, in five years. 
I think there's a basic assumption we need to make that there's no war. There's no war in Taiwan Strait. There's no war between the United States and China. We need to make that assumption. After making that assumption, how do you see what, what is the supply chain going to be like in uh, five years or 10 years? From my perspective, it's, it's clear that there will be more bifurcation in the supply chain, especially at the leading edge between China and other countries. And you see U.S. regulations and now Japanese and Dutch regulations, I think, pushing in, in that direction. Now, at, at more lagging edge technologies, that bifurcation uh, will probably be much less significant because there are no regulatory barriers right now for um, cooperation between firms or sales of equipment at, at the lagging edge. The United States, I think, has started to practice uh, industrial policy on chips. And um, part of the industrial policy is to slow down China's progress in chips. And uh, I really have no quarrel with that. In fact, I might say I support it. Although, in my opinion, in technology, manufacturing technology, China is at least, at least five or six years behind Taiwan. I look at the most advanced uh, chip they are making, and they are making it with difficulty. Uh, but that chip TSMC was making five or six years ago with ease. So that's why I said that they are at least five or six years behind. But still, I certainly support that part of American industrial policy to slow down China's progress. For the most part, the one-hour dialogue was peaceful and nostalgic, riddled with Morris Chang's funny anecdotes and trips down the memory lane. But occasionally, Chang would raise challenging questions, such as the following one about the U.S. friendshoring strategy, or a critical comment on what's really behind the American CHIPS Act. Let's hear what he had to say. Now, another part, however, is... Uh, so-called onshore, uh, friendshore, and friendshore does not include Taiwan. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Commerce Secretary has said repeatedly that Taiwan is a very dangerous place. We cannot, America cannot rely on Taiwan uh, for chips. And that's Secretary Raimondo. She has said that repeatedly, and sometimes even echoed by uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, now, that, of course, is, uh, I think, uh, Taiwan's uh, dilemma. And actually, I wonder why, you know. Uh, the United States already has, this is your number, Chris, 39% of the world, if you, if you talk about everything, if you talk about equipment, manufacturing, design, and uh, intellectual property, everything, everything, the United States has already 39%, I think that's your number. 
And the United States has many, what you call choke points, you know. Yeah, equipment, manufacturing equipment, you know, companies like Applied Material and LAM Research and so on, you know, provide choke point equipment. And uh, design services like Cadence and so on are also another choke point. And of course, the very large design industry, you know, NVIDIA, uh, Qualcomm, Broadcom, even Intel itself. So altogether, the United States, 39%. All right, so my question is, with the uh, CHIP and uh, CHIPS and uh, Science Act, right now they have, the United States has approximately 11% of uh, the manufacturing. So what is their goal? Is, is their goal to go back to 30, 40% or, or is their goal just to maintain the, uh, the supply that's essential for national security? If it's just for national security, it doesn't have to be very high, you know. It's just national security. I mean, defense stuff, maybe only a couple percent, if that much, of the total uh, chips manufacturing. So, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a it's a it's a great and complex question. I I think if you look around the world, the U.S. at Japan, uh, at Europe, what you find is over the past several years there's been um, a greater sense of risk when looking at geopolitics, intensified by uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. There's been greater thinking about business continuity planning, about worst case scenarios. And, and that's coincided with more concentration uh, in the chip industry, um, more concentration of, of memory in Korea, more concentration of advanced logic in Taiwan. And, and risk planning and concentration are, are two things that point in very uh, different directions. And so I think right now the industry is, is at, a, is at a, a difficult balance that it needs to strike because there are extraordinary efficiencies that come from concentration. The economies of scale and chip making are dramatic, and we've seen the evidence of that. But there's also concern that if there's too much concentration and something goes wrong, uh, the implications for the uh, world economy could be quite large. And you know, agree with, I think, what you were suggesting, that there's a balance to be struck between diversification and the benefits that come from that and efficiency and the benefits that come from concentration and the scale that concentration makes possible. Well, uh, I, I don't think you've told me uh, why, what the goal is and, and why the United States is doing it. Anyway, but I can see the consequences. Uh, I think one has to realize that the pervasiveness, the ubiquity of semiconductors is primarily due to its ever cheaper cost. And um, back uh, in the um, 50s, we were talking about transistors back then. We we're not even talking about ICs. Transistor was two or three dollars, one transistor, two or three dollars, one transistor. Now, you point out in your, in your uh, speech uh, before we started, but now a, uh, a cell phone carries maybe 10 or 20 billion transistors. And the cost 
of an integral circuit is maybe, I don't know, $20, $30. So uh, just let's say that it's, so a transistor is, it's not two or three dollars. It's one nanodollar, one nanodollar. One billion times, nano is a billion. One billion times the transistor, it's just about the most disinflationary thing now. All right, now, you, if you give up the, uh, the competitive advantages of Taiwan, um, and uh, move it to the United States, move the manufacturing United States. All right, the first thing that's gonna happen, and in fact, it's already happened, is that the cost is gonna go up. And our estimates of the US cost was 50% higher than Taiwan cost. I found out that that was an underestimate, perhaps a far worse underestimate than I was underestimating. <laughs> anyway. So, so 50% was an underestimate. And it, maybe it was, it's double. So you immediately introduce a, not, not a continued price decreasing trend, but immediately, it jumps, it jumps, it doubles the cost. That's that's going to that's going to do something. That's going to have some impact on the further expanding ubiquity of the chips. So that's one thing that uh, that I can see. Therefore, our next round of subject will be: Is globalization dead? At Morris, actually, uh, you won the war in your Phoenix speech last year, globalization, I quote, globalization and free trade are almost dead and are likely to come back. What's your, do, do you care to elaborate on that and what's your observation and um, how would that impact on the future of this chip industry? Yeah, I think there's no question in my mind that at least in the chips sector, hmm. globalization is dead. Free trade is dead. Uh, you know, just just uh, look at um, the way uh, uh, China has been uh, uh, embargoed and uh, entity lists and so on. You know, so and I agree with that. I I, I support that. Uh, now, but on the other hand, there is uh, this uh, onshoring and in the name of security and uh, and uh, resilience. Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's, there's no question in my mind that in the chip sector, globalization is dead. Free trade is not quite that dead, okay? Uh, but, but it's in danger, it's in danger. Mm -hmm. uh, and do, do you think that will help the development of chip industry in the, of course in the future? Not. Of course not. I would talk, I have already talked about that. Uh, the first thing that happen, that will happen is that um, the cost will go up. And, um, and when the cost goes up, the uh, pervasiveness of chips will either stop or slow down considerably. Mm -hmm. So we're in a different game. 
we are going to be in a different game, you know. What, what's your response to this? I mean, would that help <laughs> the technology in the future? Well, I, I would say a, a couple of things. I think, you know, we use the word globalization to define the chip industry, but the, the correct word is actually internationalization because the chip industry sells its products globally, but in fact uh, is dominated by just a couple of countries, Taiwan, Japan, U.S., Netherlands, uh, Korea, and most countries play no role in the production of advanced semiconductors, which, which is interesting. They buy them, uh, but they don't play a role in producing them. And so in, in some ways, the chip industry is very globalized. In other ways, it's actually extraordinarily concentrated in a couple of countries. And so I, I think what we are certainly going to see as, is some degree of shifts in market share between those countries, though probably not always in the way that governments uh, intend or would like, because the success of business models will be as important as the success of uh, industrial policies, I think. Well, I think this is one point of of disagreement, maybe. I think it's indeed concentrating a few countries because those few countries have competitive advantages in what they are doing. The U.S. has an enormous competitive advantage in design. That's why most of the fabulous companies, uh, most of the design companies are in the U.S., the market, the designer should be close to the market. And that is one reason why the US has a competitive advantage in the design sector. On the other hand, Taiwan and uh, Japan maybe, and South Korea, they have a competitive advantage in the manufacturing sector. It's mainly the people and the work culture in the country. I think somebody said uh, something about the work culture that that was uh, very well said. He said that if a piece of equipment, you know, in in chips, uh, we we run continuously, we run 24 hours, 24/7 continuously, because the the uh, facilities, the equipment are so expensive that we can't afford to stop running even even for a few hours. Anyway, somebody said that when a piece of equipment broke down, one o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, then in the U.S., it will be fixed by next morning, nine o'clock. The guy will come into work at eight, maybe, and he will fix the equipment, and it will be back functional again at nine. In Taiwan, however, if you fix it at 2 a.m., the, the guy, the technician, will get a call. He, was, he will be sleeping, but he will get a call as soon as the equipment broke down. And he will wake up, you know, she, she will start dressing, and his wife will ask, what's the matter? And he will say, yeah, something broke down. I need to go to the factory to fix it. And the wife will say, the wife will go back to sleep again without saying another word. <laughs> That's work culture competitive advantage. Hawaii has uh, quite a few of those. And we get very, very professional, hardworking and skilled technicians. Uh, anyway, it says time is up. Yes. <laughs>
The COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the fore the importance of chips and contributed to a growing trend of countries building fabs all over the place to try to ensure a stable supply of semiconductors. How is that going to work out for everyone? Dan Neistat, vice president of Triorient Investments, wrote an opinion piece after attending the event. He believed that the effort is going to cost billions and it's not going to be enough. That TSMC's factories are all in one location should come as no surprise, he wrote. He believes the problem for governments, military and business planners should be to carefully protect the places where innovation takes place. Or, as Andrew Carnegie, the 19th century American industrialist said, Don't put all your eggs in one basket is all wrong, I tell you. Put all your eggs in one basket and then watch that basket. Thank you for listening to Taiwanology Podcast. If you like our show, please subscribe, review, or leave a comment. You can find our shows wherever you find this podcast.